Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Julie Dorm, the leader of the North American board practice of Spencer Stewart. She consults with corporate boards, working with companies of all sizes from the Fortune 10 to pre-IPO companies. She has conducted more than 1,500 board director assignments. In this podcast, we discuss the findings of the 2023 U.S. Spencer Stewart Board Index, focused on corporate governance practices in S&P 500 companies. We provide some context and contrast with smaller public company practices. Among other topics, we cover trends in boardroom diversity, evaluations, term limits, ESG, and the role of technology and AI in the boardroom. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com slash boardroomgovernancepod, or you can subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. As many of you know, I launched this podcast three years ago in May of 2020, and since then, it's been a self-funded personal passion project of mine. The podcast now has its first official sponsor, the American College of Governance Council. The ACGC is a professional association of lawyers and academics in the U.S. and Canada, widely recognized for the expertise and achievements in the field of corporate governance. The ACGC was founded by some of the most prominent U.S. corporate governance lawyers, and today the organization includes over 150 practitioners and academics. The ACGC's mission is to promote a high level of professional standards among governance lawyers along with a better understanding and broader adoption of best practices within business organizations you should check out their website at www.amgovcollege.org. That is A-M-G-O-V-C-O-L-L-E-G-E dot org. Julie, it is so good to have you in the Boardroom Governance Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me to talk about your work in governance and also the 2023 Spencer Stewart Board Index, which is something that a lot of people look at in terms of statistics, in terms of data involving S&P 500 boards. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. All right. I typically start with the origin story of my guest. So why don't you tell us where you were born, where you grew up, and we'll move from there to your current role with Spencer Stewart. Okay. Thank you. Well, I was born in Ohio, in Cincinnati, but I grew up outside of Pittsburgh and went to a very small high school. Uh, And I then went to Penn State for my undergrad. And then um, I applied to Carnegie Mellon and Wharton, the University of Pennsylvania, for my MBA. So I was clearly a girl who thought that the the whole world uh, revolved around the state of Pennsylvania. (laughs) But when I graduated from Wharton, uh, McKinsey offered me a job in Los Angeles, and I never looked back and never returned to Pennsylvania. So I lived in uh, Los Angeles and London, and then I started my work with boards working for an organization called Catalyst. And Catalyst is a nonprofit women's organization uh, whose mission is to promote women in corporate America. And the, when I was there, the belief was that if you could get more women at the top of an organization, so more women in the boardroom, it would encourage and promote women throughout the organization. What years so, were those, just so people can uh, have an idea? Uh, the 80s, early 80s. Wow. 
So, um, and I'll get so, and back then, women constituted about 5%. They held about 5% of board seats. So uh, there's been a lot of change, but back then it was a hard conversation to have. Uh, And we would talk to CEOs about the importance of getting women into the room. And they would frequently say to us, well, yes, I can understand that, but there are no women. And so Mm -hmm. we would have a response of, well, tell me, what are you looking for? What kind of skill sets would be helpful? And they would tell us and we would come back with ideas of women who might be appropriate for their board. And uh, the first one I ever did was a search for a woman with a nuclear engineering background, which (laughs) was really tough. But she just retired from the board 30 years later. So Catalyst was early on in trying to really promote women in the boardroom. Uh, And I went from Catalyst, I was introduced to Spencer Stewart and joined uh, and from the beginning did nothing but board work, which was very unusual at the time because most boards didn't really look to search firms for help in identifying other directors. And it was a really different world that our clients were CEOs. They were always CEOs of the companies and they were looking for other CEOs to serve on their boards. And occasionally they'd be looking for a woman. So um, that, so that, but I've been doing it ever since. And so much has changed uh, since then, including who the clients are, what they're looking for. It hasn't, changed quickly, but it has, uh, it has changed a lot. Um, and now I've run the board practice at Spencer Stewart for 20 years or so. Wow. Yeah. That is, uh, an amazing pioneering story, at least on trying to place women on boards. And so why don't you tell us about the Spencer Stewart board index in your edition? It says it's the 38th edition, which means it was started about 1985. So it has a long history behind it. Why don't you give us a little bit of context so we know how long this has been going on? Yep. So thank you. The first edition of the board index was published in 1985, as you said, and looked at 100 companies back then, Hmm. ranging from $2 billion to $103 billion in revenue. Um, And since then, it has grown in scope and scale and now includes an analysis of the full S&P 500 and thousands of data points to reflect the changing board dynamics. So back then, change was glacial. That from year to year, nothing really happened. And now, um, every year is really a very different story. And you know, the the board index has become a major reference source for po- board policies and practices because it really tracks what's happening in every boardroom: the trends in composition, governance practices, compensation. Uh, many things. And so we're proud of the fact that we have been doing this for 38 years. Um, And this was, uh, and we just released our data. Yeah, no, it's great. And I typically use it as well when I do my classes and I teach governance. I, I, I I use a lot of the nice graphics that you have. But one thing before we dive into this data is Maybe talk a little bit about the contrast between the S&P 500 directors and practices there and the other directors in public companies, maybe smaller cap, mid cap, have other practices. Uh, Is this something that you separately track and how do you compare and contrast this group of S&P 500 with the others? So we do, uh, now we started doing a mid cap uh, board index a few years ago, and we've mm-hmm. also started doing them by industry. 
Mm-hmm. And we do see differences uh, between big companies and the smaller companies. And we do see differences in industries in terms of size of boards and obviously the kind of directors they're looking for. I'd say in smaller boards, we see more things like first-time directors, just like you would expect, because they uh, they are willing to take a bet on somebody who's maybe never been in a board before. But if you're a huge public company, you you tend to not want to do that. And so we see, um, obviously, very different compensation. Compensation in the boardroom tends to be based on company size. And so there are there are differences. A lot of what we see in the larger companies we'll see several years later in the mid cap companies. So the the trends that the, the uh, are set kind of in the in the big companies and the smaller companies follow. Hmm. Okay, there is research around this topic as well. Uh, I'm aware of how people perceive you know, these governance practices in the larger companies. And is that the right thing, the right practice to do? Is that a check the box approach? Is that a good thing overall in the macro sense? But that's, I think, a little bit more of an academic discussion. So why don't you tell us about the highlights for this year and what has changed from 23, maybe from 22 and other years? And, and you know, maybe you can give us a little bit of, of the summary for this year. So I'm I'm happy to do that and and I but I I want to go back to your point about is uh is just because a big company does it does it mean that it's the right thing to do and that everyone should follow suit and I think it's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um boards do tend to move together. So when you see a trend happening this year you will see more of it next year. So they look at what each other is doing. That can be good if they're good if they're good practices and but it doesn't necessarily have to be but they do tend to 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 follow each other this year we did see a few big changes i would say um in terms of the skills that we saw coming into the boardroom there was a return to a desire to have ceos and financial executives <laughs> and we go back uh, to the 1980s then <laughs> exactly exactly right and um the the recruitment of retired or active CEOs rose this year to thirty percent of the incoming class, which uh, which which was a big uptick. And boards also recruited more directors with financial backgrounds, and they were they accounted for about twenty seven percent of the new directors. In both categories, retirees outnumbered active executives. And I, as I said earlier, when I started recruiting into boardrooms, it you know boards composition was all CEOs. So an active CEO would serve on three outside boards. Hmm. Uh, But now there's a restriction on how many boards a CEO can serve on. They can serve on one. And a lot of boards don't want their CEO to serve on any boards. So 42% of S&P 500 CEOs serve on a board, meaning 58% do not. so when boards are looking for active or, or retired CEOs, like they were this year, they tend to look more in the retired category because they're just more available. Let's talk a little bit about that. I, th- I think that's interesting. So this is the concept of overboarding. And over the years, this idea or this practice has changed. As you said, if you were a CEO, you would serve on three boards. And if you're not a CEO, there, some people would tend to serve on 10, 12 boards, you know, six boards would be very common, but 
that has also been restricted. And it hasn't been restricted by the law. It's been restricted by, for example, proxy advisory services and others that recommend different numbers of boards and, and large institutional investors may vote against uh, directors if they exceed these numbers. So can you give us a little bit of a sense of this concept of overboarding and how maybe in the 80s, 90s and afterwards this has changed? It has changed dramatically. Uh, as you said, you know, there were people who served on 11 boards uh, back when I started mm-hmm. working with boards. But that also tells you a lot about how the work has changed because you couldn't do that now. Mm. Um, there's just not enough time in the day to do what, a, uh, a, you know, to be an active board member if you had that many obligations. Um, and you're right, you know, the the over the definition of overboarding is being set by the proxy advisors, the institutional investors. But what we're seeing is that boards are restricting themselves and they are actually more restrictive than the proxy advisors and institutional investors. So they each have a slightly different policy, but some of them would say that a board member could serve on six boards or four boards or five. And I think now most boards think that a director can serve on three total, that 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 that's the no, no more than that, because then they will not have the time okay. to devote to the company. They it will make it difficult to schedule committee meetings if somebody is overboarded. And so they really worry about it. So companies pretty much restricted to three outside boards. You make me think, and I think this is tied to what you're saying, but I'm I'm very curious. The time that directors are spending today on boards versus before, I think that's something that's really important, important to explore because can you share you know, that evolution of how boards have evolved in terms of the time they spend working and kind of the requirements that they have. And I think that's something that I always get. And the second question, which is related, a lot of people, executives have told me that their companies restrict them from serving on another board if they're an executive. Has that changed? Have you seen a trend on companies restricting their own executives from serving on outside boards? So I'll take that one first, and then I'll go back to the time sure. required. Um, companies, we the companies restrict board membership, but they don't forbid it generally. So they may say it's they they see the benefit of having an executive serve on an outside board. They will get experience there that they cannot get at their own company. Um, so they they see the value, but they want to make sure that it's a company first of all without troubles, mm-hmm. and that they could see where the either the industry or the phase of growth or whatever something about that company's business is very relevant to their own, so that they see that the executives will get good experience. There are very few companies now that just gen- generally restrict. 100% board service. There, There's a handful, mm-hmm. um, but very few. But they want to say in what the what the executive does. And they want to say in the timing. So they might say to, to somebody, you can serve on a board, but not right now, because we're just about to promote you or but whatever mm-hmm. it might be. But I think most companies are um, amenable to having their executives serve on a board. Okay. 
Having said that, it is a much more time intensive job than it used to be. And it's hard to get numbers on this. We used to say uh, there was a survey that was out a while ago that board members spent 210 hours or something like that. We just did a pulse survey of directors came back saying they think it's 350 hours now. So it's a big time jump. You know, there are a few more committees than there used to be. You know, the number of meetings hasn't changed. It hasn't gone up, but it hasn't it has not decreased. But I just I think board members spend more time in between meetings on issues on and and on meetings. Um, so it's a very time intensive job and much different than it used to be. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And I'm sure you, you've seen the evolution there. So going back to your highlights, I, I don't know if you finished the, the, the highlights. No, I can, I can give you some more. Sorry. Okay, just, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. We also um, do a survey of non-gov chairs to talk to ask them, what's what are you going to be doing next year? What's on your, uh, you know, what are you going to be thinking about for board membership? And um CEO experience is at the top of their list and financial experience for next year. The financial experience we think is a little bit different. Um, you know, it's it's hard to believe we're 20 years since Sarbanes-Oxley mm. and when all of a sudden boards had to have a financial expert. And uh, so now we're on the second generation and we're seeing financial experts retire off boards. And when they're financial expert retires, they replace them, you know, if, if the, and uh, so that's what we're seeing. And there's a lot of interest in financial experts, but a lot of it is replacing uh, retiring. We did see other changes in terms of this incoming class. Uh, more of them had board experience than in the past. We, we had been seeing a lot of first-time directors. And this year that, that changed. And I, that probably is a result of looking for CEOs who by definition have been on their own board, but there were fewer first-time directors. Um, retirees uh, were more welcome. We saw, again, a 50-50 split of active retired. Again, that could be the influence of getting retired um, CEOs in there. But you know, for the past couple of years, there's been much more interest in people who are actively working. And international experience has really gone up among uh, independent directors this year. 54% had spent time working outside the U.S. 18% were from outside the U.S. Um, so that that's a big change over if you looked for the 10 years ago, that number would have been 8%. That's interesting. And, and what do you think the source of that increase is? And uh, I say it because... There is a, a strong geopolitical tensions, and, and you would think that globalization is kind of hurting, but I suppose that's the same reason why you would want to bring people from international experience to your companies. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. Yes. Um, I think it also reflects the fact that like a little bit looking backwards versus looking forwards in a way, mm. because now you're looking, you're getting people who have international experience. It could have been five years ago. It could have been, you know, where they yeah. did a, they work at a U.S. company, but they went and ran Europe for a while, mm. or they went That's and ran true. Latin America. So I think it, it reflects the globalization of business 
and that executives are more executives have that kind of experience. Yeah. And so I think that's probably what it is. Yeah, it's a good point. It, it's a reflection of these high level executives, how they've gone through the different boards or companies or roles all around the world. And yes, uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see in 10 years if that's the same. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's a good point. I hadn't actually thought of it the way that you thought of it, but mm. I do think that um so we'll see what happens. But another thing that we highlight every year, which I find to be concerning, but um once again, we had really low turnover in the boardroom. And this is something that, you know, we see every year that, you know, by this year was seven percent of boards uh seats turned. Uh, yeah, last year it was eight. The year before it was nine. So boards don't change. They are evolutionary bodies. And not many people leave, which means not many people join. And so I think that that is an issue that we talk about a lot because we, we talk about the you know how the world is changing and and yet our boardrooms don't reflect mm. that change. So, you know, if if you just look at um, how boards in the U.S., how they accomplish change, they overwhelmingly use mandatory retirement as their refreshment tool. So while the percentages of boards disclosing a mandatory retirement age um, for directors declined a little this year, it's about 70 percent, the retirement age of boards with these policies goes up every year. And so now over half of boards with age limits have a mandatory retirement age of 75 or older. And, you know, a decade ago, that was 24% or so had that retirement age. So we just keep pushing, pushing the retirement Mm. ages up. And most of the directors who leave, three quarters of the directors who left the S&P, the 500 boards this year, was 400, about 400, they were all within just a few years of their retirement age. They, they were either at it or near it, right? Mm. So boards really rely on that methodology for turnover. Very okay. few have term limits. 8% have term limits. Uh, we, we get asked this question all the time because obviously companies overseas or countries have different, they have term limits, many of them. Um, and it just doesn't take off here. You know, there's 8% of boards in the U.S. have term limits. Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I know that, for example, in the U.K., they have a, a rule that if you've been a director for over nine years, you are no longer considered, for example, an independent director. And so, you know, it's interesting how different practices in different countries evolve. And, and obviously, the term limit is something that I'm, I'm also hearing in part because of refreshment, in your report, you say that the average tenure of directors is 7.8 years. How's the number changed over, over time? Um, it hasn't changed a lot, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, which is kind of surprising because, you know, people are staying longer. But I think they're that is about the, the way it's been for quite some time. But what's happening is the... What's being pulled down. So so if you look at boards right now, they tend to be a third, a third, a third, you know, a third under five years, a third five to 10 years, and then a third over 10 years. And some of those can be very high, but that's kind of what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And another 
highlight that you have, or at least in, in your report, was the topic of board evaluations. You know, th- this is a topic that I always find interesting because most companies report having some level of board evaluation. But the reality is, how are those evaluations done and what do they do with those reports? And I'm very curious on what's your perception and what's your findings regarding evaluations and what do you think are the current practices? Are there enough and are they improving? So you're right when you say most boards say they do them. In fact, 98% this year Mm -hmm. reported that they had a board evaluation process. Um, This is one of those things I think is also the result of institutional investors wanting this, right? But I guess the real question is, okay, they do a board evaluation of the whole, but how many of them are doing individual assessments and are they using those to try to encourage turnover in the boardroom? And um, and that's that's really the issue. Um, and they say it's about half say that they do some sort of individual director evaluation, um, which is unchanged from last year, but up from a 31% a decade ago. So more boards are doing them. Um, but I think that that when you then go and you look at when people retire, if they're all retiring at retirement age or within a year or two, you'd have to ask yourself the purpose of the board evaluation. And, and it can be that you are helping directors become better you're evaluating them and telling them, you know, the board would like you to speak more or speak less or what have you. But it doesn't appear that they are using it to encourage turnover. And that, that's that been our experience is that um, it's that's a very hard thing for boards to do is to ask a director to leave. It's a social group of equals so I think the purpose of doing them is to help make the, the board operate better as a team, to help individual directors uh, perform better. But one of the purposes also should be to help encourage turnover if it's necessary. Yeah. And I don't know if it's from Spencer Stewart or some other survey, but I've always seen this stat where boards are surveyed. They always think at at least one of the members of the board is inefficient, was not doing his yep. job and would, would leave, right? Yeah. And it's usually more than one. Mm. It, you know, you're right. Like you you see these surveys, uh, the CEO says there's several board members who should go. The board says that, you know, everybody asks these questions a little bit differently. But mm. yeah, I mean, it's a pretty high number. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about board diversity. I, I find it interesting that there's a, been a little bit of a pushback, right, year to year. Um, maybe in the last five years, there was an inc- a noticeable increase in diversity. And maybe it was some, you know, the California law, SBA 26 and AB 979 pushed gender diversity and then minority diversity. And then, you know, the NASDAQ diversity rule also has been a big driver. They just succeeded in some challenge in court recently. But it seems like it just had a small decrease this year. And so can you tell us about how you saw a big the big increase maybe in the last five years in diversity, and now there's been a little bit of a pullback? Is, is that right? 
Well, it's a, I think it's a little bit of a pullback, but from a big increase. Right. <laughs> so, right. Right. You know, the number is still pretty high this year. Two thirds of the independent director appointments um, were diverse mm-hmm. and based on the NASDAQ definition. And about half, it's 48% of all directors now are diverse. So female, underrepresented minority, or LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. So it was still a pretty high number this year. And uh, But you're right, it was a pullback from the last two years where the numbers were in the you know, 72%. You know, and, and I think that George Floyd had a lot to do with that and really bringing this issue to the forefront. And, and so boards really did bring, add diversity into the room. Um, the, so it, um, so generally I would say, even though the, there was a pullback this year, there, it is still, uh, diversity is here to stay. Uh, like for example, 46% of, uh, new directors were women this year. That is a 92% increase from a decade ago. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's a big number. Women now represent a third of all S and P 500 directors, um, and so I think that there is generally a an agreement that there should be diversity in the room. I think a lot of companies now think uh, that there should be a third of the board should be women or they should have three female directors or, you know, they they are thinking about it in a very different way than they did just a couple of years ago. And I think they also believe that about diversity. So I think it's still front of mind, but now uh, two years ago, it was the thing that boards mm-hmm. were doing. Now it is one of the important things that they're doing and among many other things. So they're trying to balance, you know, as I said, you only get one board seat every couple of years opens right. up. There's a lot you have to do. And so diversity is part of it, but it isn't everything. Um, yeah, let me ask you about that. But obviously, you've been involved in, in diversity efforts for decades. And so do you think the current trends are looking good? Uh, do you think more should be done? And what do you think about the maybe constitutional challenges? Uh, is this something that is going to impact or you think maybe that investor pressure or other sources are making it more balanced and, and that is not going to impede the the increase in diversity in boards. Yeah, I don't. I. I mean, I. I don't. None of us know about this con, that constitutional challenge. I don't think that it will impact uh, the boardroom. I think that um, boards are recognizing more the value of having diversity in the room and the value of the message that it sends to their employees, to their customers. So I and and as you said, the investor community is still very interested and they have again, each of them has their own statement and and what how they look at it, but they haven't changed. I think it is going to remain as an issue and something that is considered. But um, I don't know that, you know, I think it's hard for a board to say it has to have a certain percentage of anything because they're very small. Mm. So it's, you know, I think, and they don't get a lot of openings. So they have to be open to 
uh, looking at lots of different people and lots of skill sets and and diversity, and they're just balancing a lot. I don't think we're going to go back from that. I think that the two years ago, there was a huge push on diversity. I think that has modified a bit and come back to a level of it's important, uh, just like financial expertise is important, just like CEO experience is important, just like, you know, internet, whatever it might be. And I think it's going to remain as a consideration. So let me ask you, I mean, coming from Spencer Stewart and doing a lot of board searches, how often and, and how is the practice, for example, of a Rooney rule, right? Where when you do the board search, you include gender diversity or minorities. How's that evolved as well from the perspective of search firms and, and practices and thinking about board placements? Well, I would hope, um, first of all, a lot of companies now have adopted the Rooney rule. So it is, they they are asking for diversity. But I would hope that, I know at Spencer Stewart, we try, we have diversity on all slates. So it's trying to think about, okay, you need a financial expert you know, let's we we make sure that there are women and diverse candidates on all of those slates. Sometimes, you know, again, some companies demand it and others um, may not demand it, but everyone is conscious of it now. Mm-hmm. I think I think everybody thinks that you know you should be looking at a diverse slate, whatever that might mean. Okay. Another big trend that has happened maybe in the last five years has been the larger. ESG, environmental, social, and governance trend. And for a while, there was trillions of dollars uh, and still trillions of dollars invested in this approach. But there has been a pushback on ESG recently, and it's been more of a political pushback. And I think it's a very interesting evolution on what's going on. States, and as an example, Florida or Texas or other states, are divesting from large asset managers who are pushing for ESG. And and my question to you is, how do you think about ESG? And and also, more importantly, maybe the pushback. And what do you think about this pushback on on this ESG trend? So one thing that we, for example, we had done, uh, we do a survey, as I said, of non-gov chairs and what they're thinking. So last year, they said the mo- like they were going to be the most important thing was they wanted to bring somebody on the board that had an ESG background or they were going to be thinking about that. This year it it drops significantly. So we are we are not seeing boards looking for somebody who has an ESG background unless it, some of that depends on the industry. Um, so if you're an energy company, that might be more important. So in this regard, the pushback, I think boards are feeling it. On the other hand, I think that they also know that they need to be thinking about these issues. So they may not bring somebody onto the board who has an ESG background, but they are talking about ESG. They're taking it seriously. And some of it depends whether it's the E, the S, or the G, depending on the company, but we are not seeing them look for ESG directors. You made me think about a question on board composition, because this sometimes has been labeled as single issue uh, directors where you may have expertise in certain areas. So you mentioned financial expertise, which is mandated by Sarbanes-Oxley, 
But later, uh, people have you know advocated for cybersecurity expertise, and there are SEC rules and technology, and ESG has become like one other silo. But you say that this is you're not seeing uh, ESG single issue directors. But my question then is, what do you think about this idea of single issue directors and how to think about that from a board composition perspective? Yeah, so in general, specialist directors are not in high demand. So when we asked in our survey this year about it, only 4% of the respondents said they would prioritize directors with, for example, expertise in ESG or HR or marketing or Uh, those would be the main categories. We do see an uptick in increase with directors with technology backgrounds. And that that has changed over the years. A couple of years ago, that would have been digital. Now, as you say, it's more cyber expertise. So those are important. But I think also boards are trying to figure that out because, again, you don't have a lot of board seats. So if you need and want somebody who has a, t- a cyber background, do you want somebody who is limited to, to just has a cyber background? Or would you like somebody who's been the head of technology of a company where cyber reports to them, but that individual has a broader perspective and you know had, had, attends the board meetings of their own company and you know, is is broader. So I think single issue people are less in demand because again, you don't have a lot of opportunity to bring people into the room. And you really don't want directors who can only speak up on one issue. For a while, we were seeing single issue directors and, and that just has decreased. Um, and technology may be the exception to that. Yeah. And, and obviously technology is advancing at a rate higher than ever. And yeah. one of my questions there is, you know, board placements may seem to have been done in a similar way for uh, decades now. And, and my question to you is, we are seeing the uh, advent of AI, right? Artificial intelligence, new use of data. And do you think that board placements are gonna continue being done the same way? Or do you think the use of AI is gonna change how boards are placed. And I suppose separately to the board placement is operating, right? Maybe do you think that AI is going to change much in the boardroom since it's like a segment that, as you said, doesn't change much, doesn't evolve much, doesn't have much turnover, but technology is advancing at a very high clip. So maybe you have another perspective around that. Well, I have never thought about... uh boards using AI to do board placement. So um, now that that is something I guess we need to think about. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I think it's a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, and, and I think boards are starting to really talk about AI um, and what it's going to mean to the company, right? What the, the magnitude of the disruption and, Again, I think we're just in the beginning of thinking about it. We don't see a lot of boards asking for people who have that background, but I wouldn't be surprised if we, if you did start to see that and boards trying to figure out how do we get smart about this? You know, do we have an advisory board on AI? Do we, you know, that, that um, we bring in people who are 
staying current on it and how it might affect us. So I think that we're there more to come on this issue. So far, no no directors are being added. I shouldn't say no, I don't know, but but um with that background, but it's too early, I think, to tell. And people are, you know, board members, it's going to have a huge impact on every company. And so they're going to have to figure out how they get smart, stay smart about the the issues. But again, it might not be that they bring somebody onto the board who's an AI expert. You made me think again that maybe a lot of the trends that we see on boards are the result, uh, you know, are, are looking backwards. And I think AI is such a new trend. You know, here in Silicon Valley, essentially, you have the whole venture market that is down. But the one area that is very hot and looks like 2021 is AI. And you've got billions of dollars invested in all these new startups that are working on different uh, AI applications. And and then maybe the boardroom is just something that is going to be impacted at a later stage. And maybe the data is going to, ref- the board data is going to be reflected next year in, on, or, or two years yeah. with this trend of, of AI. It could very well be. And I think you'll probably start to see you know, boards coming out to Silicon Valley, mm. you know, to get smart about it so that it may not be you have a director, but you are informed about mm-hmm. it. Um, and the uh, and that's why I said maybe it could be an advisory board, but it could be, a, you know, a real program to be to to get smart, stay smart, ask the yeah. right questions. And um, so we'll see. It's like obviously <laughs> huge. Yeah. <laughs> they should come here. Okay, let me ask you if there are any other corporate governance questions that we did not address and that you think would be important to highlight for corporate directors. Um, I, I think that we have hit on the major ones, and I'll just reiterate one that um I I think is a real it is a real issue, and that is the lack of turnover, as I said. Mm-hmm. And um, and the aging of U.S. boards and in the world that we're living in. What's the have, average age of directors in S&P 500? I think it's 64 or 65. It's mm-hmm. somewhere in that. Um, but as I said, you'll see there's younger people coming into the room. So when you look at the average, it may it doesn't change a lot. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the spread, it does. And so we have more directors over like over 70 and and so I just I think you know you talk about AI we talk about global issues you talk you know there's so many things that boards are dealing with, and it's really hard to believe that you know only seven percent of board seats should turn over in a year you know it's just really hard to believe that every board feels like you know what we've got the right skill set in the room, and that is you know they they. There is this notion of, well, we don't, but we're going to have an opening in three years, so we'll deal with it then kind of thing. So I do think that boards, you know, you talked about board evaluations, they do them, but, you know, they're going to have to become more courageous about thinking about who's in the room. And it, it isn't necessarily personal, but if you want somebody with an AI background, somebody has to go. So, right. And um, and that, I think, is the biggest issue um, right now is change is very fast in everything else, but it isn't very fast in governance. Okay, well, let's move into the rapid fire questions. What are the one, two, three books that have greatly influenced your life? 
books that I, I well, believe it or not, I, I do read the books on happiness. I think uh, that sounds trite, but I do think sometimes it's really important to kind of ground yourself and realize that your life may be chaos, um, but you need to appreciate your life, who you are, your your family, your job and everything. So I think those kinds of things are important because we are all moving too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I like some of David Brooks's books. I love the introduction to the second mountain, for example. I thought that was incredibly thoughtful and helpful to people. Mm-hmm. And I really love writers who have the courage to go up against um, powerful people and try to write a wrong or or expose something. So the um, Empire of Pain, I thought was a superb, like was terrific about the Sackler family, mm. um, which now has been done in Netflix and all kinds of things. But but um, it, that was a tough book to to research and write. Um, the book Bad Blood, for example, mm-hmm. about Theranos. I I I really respect people who have the courage to to do those and to expose things that are wrong. Okay. No, that's great. Who were your mentors and what did you learn from them? Yeah, I I know that there's a question about the difference between a mentor and a sponsor. And I, I think I, I I'm sad to say I'm not sure I had any mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did have a very important sponsor in my life. And so when I joined Spencer Stewart, I began working with a man named Tom Neff, who is a legend in um, executive search. There were two men back then, um, Jerry Roach and Tom Neff, who did who worked in boardrooms. They did all the CEO searches and board work, and they were insiders. And um, Tom, I worked for him from the time I got to Spencer Stewart. And he included me in all of those meetings um, that where they were discussing board members and he treated me as an equal and he gave me a voice. Okay. Because, yeah, because he treated me like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but because he treated me like that, everybody treated me like that. And so I was not a bag carrier. I was a full participant. And for a young woman back then, that was really an unbelievable opportunity, which I'd like to think I seized and, uh, you know, and and did did good work. But a lot of people would not have um, opened up the world to me like he did. So. All right. Well, that's great to hear. Are there any quotes you think of often or live your life by? One one that I try to say to myself with great frequency is assume good intentions. Mm. That's it. <laughs> Assume good intentions. So when somebody says something that makes you angry or you feel like you've been slighted or somebody doesn't return your call or whatever it might be, is to take a step back. And... Yeah, my, my, my first thought to that was like, no good deed goes unpunished, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Or, or what, what is the other one? Uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? So this is embarrassing, but um, I I am a uh, avid needle pointer. That is how I kind of relax. So if you are in my family, you get a needle pointed Christmas ornament every year that's targeted. So I have a daughter who I think the Amazon driver knows how to get to her house and you know blindfolded. So she's getting an Amazon truck Christmas ornament this year. So that's my <laughs> little. That's great. 
Okay, so the final question. Which living person do you most admire? So I think the people I most admire um, are people who may not have a profile, I would say. You know, so the people who work with the hungry and mm. the refugees and things like that. And we don't know who they are. I mean, I'm on the board of something, an organization called Cradles to Crayons, which And I really genuinely admired the founder of that who saw a problem uh, of clothing insecurity 20, and, and is really trying to figure out a way to try and solve that problem. And I really admire people who do things like that. If I had to pick the name of, a, of somebody who's well known to the world, I would probably say Nancy Pelosi. And I not not because of politics or, or her politics, but she's a mother, a grandmother and a successful politician. And you look at what's happening right now mm. and, you know, remember what she was able to do. Like she kept her group together. She got things done in a world where no woman had ever done that before. And obviously men are struggling to do it now. So. Uh, I think it's hard to not admire her, who somebody who was so skilled at what she did and um, and yet had a full life, you know, personal life. Mm. Julie, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. It was great to talk to you, to learn about your career with Spencer Stewart and in corporate governance, and also to learn more about the board index, which is a great resource for all the directors. Let me ask you, uh, where can people find it and find you maybe on social media? And I, I will add, by the way, the board index in the show notes, but uh, maybe you want to give some other social media to them. No, I mean, if you just go on the Spencer Stewart website, it's that's the easiest place to find it. And and I'm on LinkedIn if you wanted to find me. All right. Well, great. Thanks again. And, and I hope to uh, maybe meet you if you come to San Francisco at some point. And this was a lot of fun. I definitely come to San Francisco <laughs> and I look forward to meeting you. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing leaving a review or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com boardroomgovernancepod. You can check out all the details related to this podcast at the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.